What's up, everybody? Welcome to Draft Chaff. This is episode number 109. My name is Zach. I'm one of your hosts. And joining me, as per usual, Ben Fisher. What's up, dude? Not much. Apparently, spoiler season is back. Does that mean the, the rest is over? <laughs> yeah, kind of unclear, right? Like, we're getting spoilers. It's not for Dom, sort of. It's kind of for Dom. I, I don't know. What, what's going on? Duh. Whatever. I mean, we, we've both kind of been taking a backseat as far as um, Alchemy, Baldur's Gate, Her- Horizons. Um, I'll be honest, I haven't touched it. <laughs> I, I touched the uh, the free midweek draft event and I did go 3-0, not, you know, just saying, uh, in a set that I haven't looked at a single card from besides, I guess, the ones that are the same from because some are the same as um, Adventures in the Forgotten Realms and some are the same as actual Baldur's Gate, which I did do a draft of. But um, honestly, pouring all of my time and effort into stuff like the cube or going to the beach has just been so much more productive. But uh, anyway, we have something special today. We got a I know we kind of we kind of did a bit about it last week, but we do actually have a Vector Theory episode to talk about, don't we? We sure do. It's been a little while. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> We've been talking about doing one for quite some time and it just hadn't fit the schedule because release after release after release. But yeah. got some downtime. So we're bringing you Vector Theory 301. Before we get into all of that, our usual housekeeping. Check out the Discord if you're not already in there. It's the best place to be to chat all things draft, all things magic and kind of all things life. I mean, we've got a bunch of different different channels in there, so check it out if you're not already in there. And if you'd like to support the show directly, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draft chaff pod. Huge thanks to all of our patrons who continue to support us each and every week. You guys rock. Perks over there include things like our Draft Doctor series, stickers, show notes, unedited recordings of the show, and our Draft Chaff Hero card signed by us and sent right to you. Again, you can check that out at patreon.com forward slash draft chaff pod. On to our crack and draft type thing. And well, I've got it. Don't worry. So um, our first card out of the pack is five. What do you think of five? Eh, it's OK. Not really my favorite card and I'm not really looking to first pick it, but it'll make your deck. Yeah, that's true. How about six? Now, six is a lot better. Uh, we've seen six on cards like Renin six and that's just <laughs> a money card right there. Also very playable in almost every format. So you would be happy to draft one of those. Now we're going to we're going to bring things down a little bit. How about a one? Well, one sounds like one of the least powerful cards in the pack, but it actually tends to play quite well in the decks that can take advantage of it. It's not something you want to first pick too well, uh, just because it does kind of force you down a specific lane, but um, yeah, we'll keep it in our back pocket. Yeah, it's going to keep your curve low, right? Uh, what about A? Nah, next. <laughs> well, it's an F. <laughs> yeah, okay, moving on. How about a 5-7 FBF? Now, Bit of a long a name in this one. Yeah, it, this has got some power behind it. Yeah, definitely. Locking you into multiple colors there, and uh, you're going to have to build around it, but I'm, I'm pretty happy to pick one of these up early. I think it's a good speculation pick. Mm-hmm. Uh, B1F1F. This one has a lot of my initials in it, so I'm a big fan of this. Yeah, can't complain there. Uh, now, we're getting to our uncommons here. Um, our first one here is E3E5C. I haven't had too much success with this card. <laughs> no, I bet you haven't. <laughs> and last but not least, we've got DD314. Now, uh, this does actually contain a few digits of pi and two Ds in a row. That's kind of a fun, uh, fun topic. All right. On to our Deferry Temple. <laughs> this is our Roses and Thorns style of segment where Ben and I share a high and the low from the past week. So, Ben, what you got? We're just not going to talk about that. Nope. <laughs> We're just going to keep going. <laughs> All right. Whoever gets that one, I guess, uh, congrats. Oh, man. I'll start with my tibble. I move in less than a week and I stare at this massive pile of boxes and loose cards next to me on my desk. And I'm like, well... 
got to start packing eventually. So I'm going to spend a lot of the day after we finish this recording, uh, just packing stuff up, taking stuff off the walls, getting ready to move. And moving is always a bit of a pain, but you know, there's fun stuff that comes along with it. Like hiring movers. It's not really that fun, I guess. <laughs> um, no, it, it's also been mad hot around here in New Jersey. It's also supposed to thunderstorm for like the next week I saw conveniently during my moving week uh, as it tends to go. So I'm sure that'll work out well. Uh, as for some teferis, I uh, had all you can eat sushi yesterday. Always a good time. No, you got to catch up with some friends I hadn't seen in, in a while. Uh, my Pioneer deck arrived in the mail. So that, that's kind of fun. I finally got the rest of the missing pieces for uh, Featherless Feather. Although right now I did get a copy of Feather. So I guess I'm deciding still if it's going to be Featherless Feather or Featherful Feather. Yeah, well, what do you call that? Is it Feathered Feather or feather, Non-Featherless Feather? Maybe you just call it Feather at that point. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's got like Swift Spears and Illuminator Virtuosos, which is kind of sweet. Some connive action going on. Some heroic cards, uh, all the way back to some hoplites that that were in my very first deck. So I got to dust off my like the very first deck I ever built myself. And then uh, apparently, spoiler season is happening again. So look, I guess it kind of is more enjoyable now that we've had a break, at least for uh, among the cards we cared about. I'm not gonna lie, like the the alchemy uh, spoilers, th- these do nothing for me. Yeah, I can't say they do anything for me either. What does do it for me is my Teferi. I've got a short trip planned this weekend, just a one night like like an overnight kind of trip uh, going to the beach with some friends. Uh, nice. They have a house and uh, I think maybe 10 of us or so going and uh, just going to kind of hang out for a day and hopefully relax and chill a little bit. Dope. My tibble is that uh, I've been feeling really stuck this summer. Ben and I were just talking about this before the show, but I don't really know how to put, put it into words necessarily, but I've just been feeling really stuck in a lot of different areas of life. So uh, not really sure what to do about that, but uh, hopefully I'll get unstuck sometime soon. Yeah. And uh, yeah, ditto to that heat problem. Uh, you know, shout out to our UK friends who I think are getting it even worse than we are. Yeah. Uh, heat yeah. wave right now is is awful. Um, <clears throat> and to that point, uh, I usually am a big stickler for audio quality in these in these uh, episodes, but you may be able to hear my my AC running in the background. I can't turn it off for this recording because it's just too freaking hot. <laughs> I mean, you could turn it off, but you might die. So yeah, eh, audio quality, death, eh, got to draw a line somewhere, I guess. So no listener question this week. Uh, if you got questions for us, hit us up. That's all. <laughs> you know, we love hearing from everybody and we love when you ask us stuff about life or, or uh, space and time. I guess uh, if you have questions about that, uh, that's my area of expertise, at least. If you have a question about um, uh, buying yourself a new keyboard where the keys don't stick and, and uh, actually work, that's a question for Zach. All right. On to our main topic this week. And again, this week, we're going Vector Theory 301. So this is not for the beginners necessarily, though we are going to highlight our first two looks at vector theory. If you're not familiar with vector theory at all, you've never heard the phrase, you're like, what the heck are these guys on about? Check out our episode on vector theory 101, and that'll kind of break down. But we'll go into a little bit about what vector theory is here in this episode as well. And uh, Ben, why don't you just kick it right off? I I don't want to spoil it in terms of what we're actually getting to quite yet, but over to you. Yeah. So vector theory is my baby, (laughs) we'll say. Uh, A way of thinking about magic, particularly limited, but it applies to everything, uh, all formats, um, that hasn't really been done before. And we thought, hey, it'd be kind of cool if we plant our flag, take some ownership over this idea and and share it with the masses. So what is a vector? Uh, In science or in math, 
Uh, a vector is a quantity that has both length and direction. So vector theory is a way of applying the same framework to magic that'll hopefully help you level up everything from deck building to gameplay. So the big idea is what if magic cards also have both a, a strength, uh, how good they are, and a direction, where they point, just like in math and physics. Uh, so the direction refers to like the archetype or uh, the game plan, if you will. Uh, and the strength relates to how well that card contributes to that game plan. So, for example, Mana Drain and Counterspell, they point in the exact same vector direction, right? Uh, a deck that would want to leave up double blue. But uh, Mana Drain has a longer vector arrow, we would say, because it's just a strictly better Counterspell. Unless there's Mana Burn, I guess, but, uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah, then you can think about that in terms of magnitude, that length that Ben is talking about. It's just how how much does a certain card contribute to that direction uh, is, is where we get the magnitude for those things. And then we moved on to Vector Theory 201. And this is sort of just an extra look at Vector Theory a little bit deeper to kind of go through how you can improve, improve your draft picks by taking cards that more closely align with a given deck's vector. And this in this episode, we kind of talked through the fact that not only do cards have vectors, but the actual deck itself has a vector as well. So you can kind of look at them separately. Cards have their own vector and they'll show you what what sort of deck does this card want to be in and then how well does it contribute to that, that deck's game plan. Then you have an overall deck that has a direction and a magnitude as well. And then those exist in kind of their own subsets. So for instance, a red-green beatdown deck that has, you know, one drop, two drop, three drop, four drop, and a bunch of really powerful creatures sounds like a very honed vector. It's got a, a large magnitude because everything's built, working together, doing its thing, and it knows its direction. But then mm-hmm. a red-green, quote-unquote, beatdown deck is what you're going for maybe, but you ended up with like a handful of dorks and maybe some cards that aren't actually good attackers. They're red and green, and they they technically fit the deck. You can cast them, but they're not really doing anything to help your the magnitude of that vector is going to kind of put that deck as a whole at a shorter vector than than the first one I mentioned. Mm-hmm. It's just not quite as effective as the other deck at, at carrying out the game plan. And this actually changes by by a set by set basis. So like there are some uh, some sets out there where red green beatdown is where you want to be. But maybe there's some sets out there where red green is a little bit more rampy and wants to kind of sit back and ramp into a huge dragon or mythic or something. So uh, another good example of that is in Strixhaven. Uh, the one that comes to mind right away is red white and lore hold so you can have a red white beatdown deck or that kind of wacky red white defensive graveyard deck and yeah uh, we all know that you know neither of these were the best things to be doing in strixhaven but you know you could draft these the beatdown deck would never want to play a copy of quintorius the like five mana two four that was a spirit lord but the, uh, the, the, the the slower graveyard deck would also never want a copy of, uh, I guess they could, but they want it much less, something like Make Your Mark, the uh, the one-mana trick that gives a creature 1-0, and when it dies, you get a 3-2. That's much better in the in the beatdown deck where you're functionally getting you know like a, a one-mana 3-2 with sometimes at instant speed. And a side note, Lorehold actually did suffer because of this. Compare that to something like Blue-Black Zombies in Midnight Hunt or Black-Redded Sack in Adventures of the Forgotten Realms, where all the cards were notoriously and disgustingly aligned in the same direction. We we tend to say that means that they're very deep colors or, or, or a deep archetype when even the mediocre cards still contribute significantly to a certain vector. Lorehold and Strixhaven just, you know, it had cards pointing all over the place. And oftentimes you would 
try to draft lore hold and even take red white cards but wind up in a deck that pointed in two different directions some cards pointing aggressive some cards pointing defensive and then you wind up with a less effective deck overall and it's worth mentioning that all cards in all decks have vectors pointing in every direction so you can think about them as being on like a, a an infinite sort of circular scale right where the directions of the vectors are pointing in every single direction but they have different magnitudes and so uh the card like quintorius has a vector in both of the directions ben mentioned one is just much stronger than the other and so that that's also something you can kind of look at you can technically put these cards in any decks how much they contribute to the strength of that deck varies card by card and what the actual deck's vector is trying to do. Like, sure, you could put Quintorius in an aggressive deck, but then you have a five mana two four in your aggro deck. <laughs> it's like, you want to turn that sideways? Sure, go nuts. So we've taken a look at how cards have vectors. We've taken a look how decks have vectors built of those cards. Uh, we looked at how that can influence our drafting. I'd like to skip over the next sequential topic, which I guess would be deck building uh, until a later episode, and address gameplay, because this is something I've been thinking about a lot, uh, particularly while while playing an awful lot of flashback drafts on Arena instead of Baldur's Gate. (laughs) So for this installation of Vector Theory, we're going to take a look at how a lot of players fight against the vector of your own cards. I do it. Zach does it. You, listener, you do it too. Probably without knowing it. And we're going to talk about how that can... You know, we can put a stop to that with vector theory. Right. So let's let's start with this scenario. The idea here is, I don't know, it's a rainy night. You you drove off the street and you're landing, you land your car in some kind of ditch. So you call up some friends, you know, it's late, you can't get a hold of a tow company. You get some friends out, ask them to help you push your car. You've got six folks there, you're all trying to push the car, but your instructions were pretty non-specific. You just asked for help pushing the car. And so five of you start pushing from behind, and you're making good progress until your sixth friend decides to be that guy and walks around to the front of the car and starts pushing against the rest of you. Now, the five of you pushing against one person probably still going to be making progress. You're probably still going to eventually get that car out of the ditch, but it's harder than it should be, right? You've got somebody literally pushing in the opposite direction, adding work to this endeavor. Yeah, so... (laughs) You're probably not going to invite this friend to the next barbecue or anything, <laughs> but uh, all you asked for help was was with pushing the car, right? Just not not a good friend. And like Zach mentioned, you're going to get the car out, but it could have been easier, right? It would have been better if everyone had been pushing in the same direction. Wait, wait a minute. Hold on. Pushing. That's a that's a force that you can exert, right? I should mention my background is in physics education. So uh, forces are vectors. They have a direction and a strength. Uh, in this case, it would have been much easier to get the car out of the ditch if everyone been pushing the same direction, because then you don't have these forces canceling one another out. What may just makes it harder. It means that the total net force, that the sum of the forces on this car uh, is just less strong as opposed to if everyone had been pushing unified from one direction. And, uh, you know, there are other assumptions we need to address here, too. What if your friend is actually a, you know, a weightlifter? And they happen to be a little stronger than the average friend in your group. Or maybe your friend is, uh, maybe maybe they're doing a bit and they convince your other friends to join them. And then all of a sudden you've got like three people pushing from either side. Then you're not getting anywhere. So it's obviously better to have your entire friend group work together and exert a force on the car in the same direction to maximize the net force on the car. Gee, it almost sounds like you could apply that to magic. You know what? It kind of does. Yeah, I think people see where we're going with this, right? Replace the friends with magic cards. Uh, replace getting your car out of the ditch with winning the game. These are much more entertaining stakes. I'd much rather be trying to win a game of Magic than get my car out of a ditch. Yeah, I think that makes everybody. 
<laughs> unless there's someone out there that just really loves pushing cars. If that's you, listener, uh, just like, comment, and subscribe if that one's you. So vector theory can help us spot the unhelpful friend in your gameplay. Uh, plays where, well, you might not be just against your opponent, but you might be having your own cards accidentally work against your vector, your deck's vector, the card's vector, and maybe making it harder for you to win the game. When, you're, when your goal is to keep the vectors of all your cards aligned with each other and your deck, uh, it helps simplify decision-making. So let, let, let's think about an extreme case, right? Let's consider one vector. I'm going to pick a vector that I'm, I'm very familiar with because I've, I've drafted, I don't even know how many times. Let's talk about red-green werewolves in Crimson Vow. So you're playing a fast red-green werewolves deck. Your opponent never plays a second land, and you get to go two drop, three drop, four drop, just turn them all sideways at every possible moment, kill them. You win the game very easily, right? That's the vector of red-green. It wants to do that. Now, let's look at another extreme. If your opponent has some, let's just make up a card. Let's say there's a one mana 10-10 wall with the text, this creature can block any number of additional creatures each combat. Just pretend it existed in, uh, in Crimson Vow. That is perfectly against your vector. That That's, uh, you know, a great roadblock against something like Red Green. So by looking at these extreme cases, this helps us kind of look at what Red Green is trying to do. It wants to turn cards sideways, get in a lot of damage, beat down, doesn't have access to a lot of unconditional removal, but it can go wide if needed. Now, most games will obviously wind up somewhere in the middle, but you want to make the gameplay choices that maximize your deck's vector. Now, you know, like we said, your opponent is probably going to play stuff. They're probably going to interact with you. They're not going to play a thing that shuts down your board perfectly, but you want to make the gameplay decisions and uh, card choices that best allow your deck's vector to be successful. In this case, turning creature sideways, getting in for damage. Right. So, you know, maybe your opponent doesn't play a two drop and you find yourself smiling because your two drop and hasty three drop can just attack as much as they want at this point. At that point, your cards and your deck's vector are aligned. They're both doing the things they want to do. You'll hear some players call this firing on all cylinders. Like you're doing the thing that not only your deck wants to do, but also each individual card in your deck wants to do. But then maybe your opponent plays a solid five drop. It's their only creature on board. And, and you've got, I don't know, like two or three combat tricks in, in your deck. It's a smaller roadblock than that 1010, but it's still stopping what you want to do, right? You could top deck one of those combat tricks and maybe get a creature through, but then you might have to sacrifice another creature in order to do so. So you've got some roadblocks up, but your cards are still kind of being able to work in the way that that the deck wants them to. Mm -hmm. Now, this is what inspired this episode. I have seen players who seem to be aware of their deck. They seem to know what they're doing, but they will make a gameplay decision that counteracts their own deck vector. They, they will they will make a choice, often relating to attacking or blocking or using a combat trick or something like that. Uh, they will make a certain choice, of which they had options, that does not align with the direction that their deck and cards point in. So let, let's look at this in context, right? Let's say you're playing that red-green deck. Aggressive, it's got two drops, two drops, that type of thing. Let's say you're in a mirror match and you're entering the mid-game. You tap out to play a hook hand mariner. Uh, those that know the set know that is a four mana four four, and it flips into a six four that can't be blocked by creatures of power two or less. And you have some other smaller creatures too, some like two twos and three twos and stuff. Your opponent untaps and they swing in with a two two prowling ridge wolf. The question is, do you block with your four four with the mariner, uh, or maybe do you even try to trade off with a smaller creature? Many players do, <laughs> you know, like uh, many, many players look at this and say, oh, my opponent is attacking me with a 2-2 two -two into my 4-4, four -four. snap off that block. I did that for an awfully long time. I just don't do it anymore. 
<laughs> you know, after all, a trade for their creature or their creature plus a combat trick, that is card advantage or at least card parity, right? But there's other things to consider here. The mana that was spent in these and the fact that you've already established this 4-4 as a solid board presence. Take another look at this, this hook hand mariner, right? What is this thing's vector? Right. So, I mean, the back of the card really just gives you a hint there. It, it can't be blocked by creature's power two or less. This thing wants to get in the red zone, right? It wants to get in. It wants to not care about all your opponent's little dorks that might have otherwise tried to get in its way. And it's either going to trade off for something big, and you're you're pretty happy with that because they're forced to block it with like their four four or five four or whatever. Or it's getting in for damage. Yeah. And I, that's the ideal scenario, right? It wants to get through for damage, but you're you're faced with this situation where by blocking with these creatures. You know, blocking your opponent's uh, Prowling Ridge Wolf in this example, you're acting against the inherent vector of those cards and your deck's overall game plan. And by putting the Mariner in front of their Ridge Wolf, you're kind of allowing your friend, so to speak, if we go back to that car example, to push against the rest of your team because that Mariner doesn't want to block. It, it's not designed to yeah. block. It never thought about blocking. And you've also put yourself in the position where if they do have a combat trick, you're kind of getting blown out. And that also is fighting against your own deck's vector, right? It wants to have all the creatures it can get, attack through the red zone, get the damage in, and kill your opponent as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a good chance your opponent isn't just, you know, auto-attacking every turn. They probably made this attack knowing that they had something or that they were making a very, very smart bluff. And bluffing is, is complicated and it depends on many levels, particularly on the skill level of your opponent. So I would say that when you put that 4-4 in front of your opponent's 2-2, and they have the trick. In this case, uh, Sure Strike is in the set. One of the red, 3-0 First Strike. So in this case, when they have the Sure Strike, then you get to untap and you say, okay, um, my game plan is still to crack in for as much damage as possible and to go as wide as I can. And you look down and you're like, oh, I only have these smaller creatures now. <laughs> like my 4-4 my is no longer there. And that's how these advantages swing uh, in decisions like this. I mean, life total is a resource, right? You just take the two damage instead, note the surprise look or the brief pause on arena of your opponent as they realize you didn't fall for it. And then uh, you untap with a unified vector and a powerful board presence. You untap with your 4-4, the smaller creatures, they attack with their thing, particularly in a, in a swingy set like Crimson Vow, then you just get to start slamming, <laughs> right? Uh, and then, of course, this is where bluffing can come into play. And this is actually kind of how bluffing falls into vector theory. If your opponent plays a very strong three drop, you feel as though you can attack your two drop into it just right off the bat, right? Because they know that, that the risk of trading their strong card, a card that is strong in a certain direction and with a large magnitude in that direction, like a three mana bomb, like a Torrens or something. If you attack a one, two into a, a Torrens, a three mana two, two with really strong effects, they're never blocking that. They know you can have a trick. Uh, so then, I mean, just think about our previous scenario. If our opponent didn't actually have the sure strike, then they just got in for free damage, right? Yeah, and so that that's a viable question to ask, right? You see your opponent attack you with a creature that you wouldn't have made an attack. Like, you clearly have a blocker that could take them out. So the question then becomes, do they have a trick? Am I going to lose my creature? And I think in some cases, it may actually be worth just throwing a smaller creature in front of it. And, t and again, in terms of, like, your vector, let's say your life total's at two, and they're attacking with their Ridge Wolf. Like, you don't have an option not to block there, but the question is, do you block with your 4-4, four -four or do you block with, say, your 2-2? And, well, you could block with their four with your 4-4. Four -four. They might have a trick, and if they do, you lose your 4-4. Four -four. Or you could block with your 2-2, two -two, and even if they don't have the trick, you're losing the 2-2. Two -two. But what is the stronger card 
for your deck's vector, right? If you untap, would you rather have the 2-2 or the 4-4? And in this deck's vector, you'd much rather have the 4-4 that could potentially flip into a 6-4 and just get through for free than than a 2-2. Let's look at another scenario in the same theoretical matchup in this red-green mirror. So you and your opponent are racing, and every card and every damage point will matter. Of course, it's a race. So let's say your opponent is fully tapped down. Uh, and you have the ability to swing in and put them to a low life total down to like two or three, uh, but not to kill them. Uh, if you do attack with all of your creatures, you're at a low life total, say you're at like five, and you'll die to your opponent's full swing, the crackback, as we call it. Assuming your opponent doesn't top deck like a removal spell or something, you're just hoping they, they are drawn lands. You're thinking, okay, I can leave back a creature to block. So the question is, which of these following creatures uh, would you block with? Would you leave back to block? Let's say you have a Snarling Wolf, one in a green for a 1-1, one, one, and you can pay one in a green to give it uh, plus two, plus two. Activate only once per turn, of course. Sporeback Wolf, which is a two-mana 2-2 two, two that gets plus O, oh, plus two on your turn. And the Hookhand Mariner that we mentioned earlier. Pause for a minute. Think about it. Which creature, if I asked you to leave back a blocker to you know, win this game, uh, which are you leaving back? So I think a lot of newer players would leave back the best blocker, quote-unquote. I'm doing air quotes best blocker now on paper the best blocker here is the biggest thing right the thing most likely to be able to block and survive which would be the hook hand mariner i would say this is the worst thing to leave back blocking because your deck's vector is attacking and getting in as much damage as possible there's tricks in this set that could be in your deck that give trample uh things that allow you to, to spill over and get in for extra damage there's burn in the set to go straight to your opponent's face i would leave back the Sporeback wolf here now, let's talk about why. Uh, it, it feels safe to leave back the big blocker, right? There's a chance that my opponent just isn't able to attack without losing a creature, right? Uh, and then uh, putting me to a low life total. However, this gives your opponent a lot of control over the scenario, and then they get to decide if you know that attack is worth losing their creature. Maybe they decide that in their vector, which is also red, green, and aggressive, they decide that, well, throwing away a creature to the block there is actually worth getting in for four. And honestly, if they're a good vector theorist, they might even decide that that is the best direction for their deck. And they might be happy to trade off a creature in hopes of getting through. Or maybe they have the uh, the one green combat trick that gives 2-2 two, two and trample or something like that. So holding back your four power creature decreases the total amount of damage that you'd be dealing this turn. You've got to trust your deck. You, you can't let your card work against you like this. You have to know that there's other cards in your deck, things with haste. Things that, like we said, give trample or uh, buff power. You have to trust that your deck was all built with the same vector and not imagine suddenly switching to a blocking defensive mode. Uh, you have to consider that your deck was built with this game plan in mind in the context of the set. And like we said, other red-green sets or other red-green decks and other sets, maybe they do want to start you know, holding back and blocking. Maybe they do have the cards and equipment for that. But in this set in particular, you're winning your game by turning your cards sideways. So... Turn the cards sideways that are begging to be turned sideways. I I saw actually the the, the first inciting incident for this uh, th this topic was I saw an opponent leave back a a two one. Uh, it's like the, the little vampire. I forget the name, but it's a one of the red two one, and it has first strike as long as it's attacking. I saw them leave that back to block on like turn three or, or four. I was like wait a minute, <laughs> that's not what that card wants to do, right? Uh, when when a card says on it that it wants uh, to be attacking, it often says something like on your turn, or when it attacks, or uh, as long as it's attacking, or it can't be blocked by a certain thing. These do nothing for you defensively. Honestly, even the Sporeback Wolf 
on your turn, it gets plus O plus two, which might seem like a defensive ability, but that's actually an aggressive ability. It's attacking as a two four and it defends just as a two two. It's at its best while attacking. Yeah, and I, I think you said it well when when you were talking about looking for the best blocker, right? Looking for the best block, maybe the Mariner is the best blocker, right? It might actually just be objectively the best blocker on the board, but does it actually want to be blocking? And does your deck want it to be blocking? No, I not think at all. Uh, right, and I think I think what you want to be looking at when you're assessing these board states is am I using the card to maximum efficiency? Am I using this given card to do exactly what I put it in my deck to do? Nobody looks at a hook hand Mariner and says, I'm putting this in here to block, right? You're putting it in there to attack and get in the red zone and hit your opponent's face. So use it for that. Mm-hmm. And certainly there are, there are some situations where you're on the back foot and you have to make decisions that you don't want to make, right? You're sometimes you're forced into a position where you do have to kind of use less efficiency, so to speak, from your cards as it pertains to your deck's vector. We're not really talking about those. Those are kind of outlier situations. We're talking about like the majority of of gameplay situations you'll find yourself in. And and, and you've heard it. You've heard this called uh, something slightly different, uh, I'm sure. And a lot of pros talk about this as playing to your outs, right? When mm-hmm. Ben's talking about exactly. finding cards. Like maybe you know you have a haste creature or you have a particular combat trick in your deck. You want it like when you find that card, what would you like your board state to look like? And if keeping this Mariner back doesn't get your opponent down the extra couple damage in order that your combat trick will now kill them. Well, that's not exactly where you want the board to be. So these are the things you have to be thinking through when you're looking at using your card, maximizing the, the magnitude of the card's vector as it pertains to your deck. Exactly. The scenario you just described is one that comes up a lot where you 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 lose the game because your opponent top deck the removal spell and you say, oh, well, if I had just gotten in for like two more points of damage, then this this pump, uh, pump spell, this combat trick would have been it. You should have put yourself in the scenario for that combat trick to have been it, right? Even if it hurt a little bit, even if it meant that there's a higher percentage, maybe your opponent has like, a, maybe there's a chance they could draw like a deal to or something. And in some percentage of games, sure, they will snipe your spore back wolf and they'll swing in for lethal. And you just kind of go, yep, <laughs> they got it. But in a, in a bigger percentage of games, you'll find yourself getting the perfect top deck because you put yourself in the scenario where you're best agreeing with what your deck was built to do. You're you're playing into it. And this means you haven't been trading off your creatures or putting them to in front to block if they're meant to be attacking. By the way, this is not just applicable to you as somebody who's piloting a given deck. It's also applicable to you as somebody who's watching somebody else pilot a particular deck. Because if you know vector theory, you can see certain cards come from your opponent and expect that they are building their deck in a certain way to maximize the magnitude of those cards vectors and that deck's vector overall, you can kind of be thinking, well, they're making this attack, they're getting their Mariner through, or they're, they're yeah, they're not leaving their Mariner back to block, and, well, they probably have this combat trick because this deck wants those, and if they have them, they're definitely playing them. And if I take this damage here, then that combat trick leaves me live to die. So I need to block this way. And these are the kind of things you're thinking through not only your own vector and your own cards vectors, but also your opponents. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So like I mentioned in this scenario, I would actually leave back the spore back wolf. I would want to be attacking the following turn again without knowing what's coming off the top of my deck. Sure, it could be a land. It could be a pump spell. It could be a combat trick. Uh, I'm playing to the vector of my deck. At that point in the game, I would want the Snarling Wolf and the Hookhand Mariner to be the things that I'm attacking because that's putting functionally seven power towards my opponent the next turn. That also means that they have to think carefully about if they can even bother to attack because maybe they didn't draw that removal spell. Maybe they see that uh, if they full swing, then 
I would block with the Sporeback Wolf, and then that leaves them dead to, to whatever the crackback is. So by by best playing to your deck's vector, you are doing the most you can to make sure uh, that all of your cards are pushing in the same direction. Now, this is a scenario, I mean, you don't want to be leaving a card back to chump with anyway, right? This is a scenario where you deemed it necessary. If you're being told that you're going to have one of your friends pushing against you, you want to give it to your weakest friend, right? Like you don't want to put your strongest friend to be pushing against the rest of you. Don't leave your hook hand mariner to do the blocking. Let your hook hand mariner keep doing what it's meant to do, attacking, and give it to the, the card that at this point has the weakest vector in the turning sideways and killing your opponent direction, which I believe to be the Sporeback Wolf. Yeah, I think this is really valuable to keep in mind when you're playing games, right? This on its surface at least sounds like card disadvantage you're actively you're we're basically telling you to chump block with something in this in this given example Mm -hmm. but there's a different aspect to to trading cards in the middle of a game that i think it doesn't get enough attention and something that vector theory highlights quite well is the sort of efficiency or or you know the way i think about it is i don't know if if the listener has seen some of the older pro tour coverage videos but go back and watch some of the older Pro Tour coverage videos, and you'll see that they used to have this little graphic at the bottom of the of the, the display that would show sort of a favorability for a given player. So at a given point in the game, they would say, like, this player is 97% to win or whatever. I don't think they gave actual percentages, but it was, like, more most likely to win, not very likely, that kind of thing. Yeah. And they, maybe they called it advantage or whatever. This person has the advantage. What you're really thinking about when you're when you're trying to apply vector theory to your gameplay decisions like this is, sure, I may be going down a card or maybe have card parity here. You may be trading off cards that I'd rather not trade off. But am I still gaining the advantage because my deck is poised to do exactly what it wants to be doing in this scenario, regardless of the fact that maybe I went down a card? And Ben talks about this all the time in terms of your aggro decks, like drawing your opponent's cards. It doesn't matter if they have them, if they're dead before they get to use them. My deck doesn't care that they're drawing more cards because I plan to kill them before they can use them. So it's, it's, it's sort of that way as well. Instead of caring about the card advantage, you're caring more about card efficiency and using the cards to the best of their ability within the context of what your deck actually wants them to be doing. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of sequencing tips that, that come from this too. If you're, in a scenario where you have the opportunity to either play a two-drop creature or hold up a two-drop removal spell, you should almost always play the creature in, in a race like this because you want that creature to be able to do what it's meant to do. And in this case, in red-green, that's attacking and turning sideways. Uh, if you, like, say, wait an extra turn, you might really miss that power that you, that you want on the board to be able to turn sideways. Maybe that your opponent removes your other creature that you had and you're like, oh, well, now that gets to freely attack me and rebuild their board and I can't keep pressure in their life total. Uh, I always err on the side of playing out my creatures and holding up the removal spells in a tight race like that because you can always untap, play the removal spell and swing for what could be lethal. Uh, whereas if you play the removal spell in their end step and then untap and then play your two drop, well, then that thing can't attack till next turn and you haven't maximized your deck's vector. So to kind of just like wrap up and review everything we've covered here, right? The idea that we're talking about is don't fight against your cards. Your cards are in your deck to do a specific function. Let them do that thing. And when you're put in a position where you have to make a choice between letting one card do its thing and letting another card do its thing, which of those cards is doing their thing better than the other and which is actually getting you further in the direction that your deck wants to be going. Exactly. This doesn't just apply to aggro mirrors, of course. There are some cards that are meant to stay back. Think of a uh, the 113 in this set, the uh, undying... Uh, 
phalanx, whatever it's called. You shouldn't attack with that very often. I mean, it's functionally a five mana removal spell that just sits back and blocks something forever. That's a bit of an extreme case, but I do like my extreme cases. So I'm sure everyone can think of uh, cards in other sets too that that have a very particular use. It's like, um, are you ever going to play like a two mana, one, one mana dork, for example, if your opponent attacks into it with a, a two, one, you're not going to block with it very often, are you? Yeah, not so much. No, not if your deck is built to slam a four drop on turn three. It, it would go against your, uh, your own deck's vector. Let your card do what it's meant to do. Well, I think that sums it up quite nicely. If you're interested in getting a little bit more detail on this sort of thing, Ben typically writes up an article for this over on Cardsphere. So you can check out the past episodes that we've done on Vector Theory if you want a little more deep dive into some of those other uh, sort of more basic Vector Theory concepts. And there are articles for those as well. So check that out on Cardsphere. And if you're not already in the Discord, check that out. It's the best place to go to chat with us and catch up on all things magic or otherwise. If you'd like to support the show directly, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draft pod. Again, we really, really appreciate all of you guys who are doing that. And if you'd like to reach out to us outside of the discord, you can find us on Twitter at draft pod. Thanks folks. And we'll talk to you next week. So uh, Zach, I just posted a link at the bottom of the show notes. Just click on that while I say something real quick. Uh, I was looking back at some of the old feedback from some of the previous Vector Theory episodes. Oh my God, people. Y'all weren't paying attention in physics class. I got multiple pieces of feedback saying that uh, I had confused Newton's second and third laws. Okay, come on. You think I didn't double check this one? So uh, I I was at one point describing something saying that if you have uh, two forces exerted on a box, um, one from either side, equal in strength, and opposite in direction. Uh, I said this was an example, if we look at the resulting acceleration of the box, um, that this was uh, an example of Newton's second law, which it is. Uh, and I got a handful of people saying, no, well, you're looking at things with opposite direction and uh, equal strength. That's obviously Newton's third law. Just wanted to put it out there that Newton's third law pairs cannot both be exerted on the same object because they must contain different systems. It is by definition object A exerting a force on object B and then object B exerting a force back on object A of equal strength and opposite direction. I think some comments on Reddit even cited that they had a physics degree. And uh, if that was you and you're listening, I'm sorry, but open up your textbook. Shots fired. (laughs) That said, we do have some Dom spoilers. Okay, first of all, I want to say these basic lands, chef's kiss, they look incredible. I should know that the live stream, I think, is still happening as we're recording. We were recording this on Thursday, the 21st. So I don't think everything's out yet. No, we only have a few cards. Wow. Stained glass. These are cool. I like the planes a lot. Yeah, they're gorgeous. Um, These are all... um, well, first of all, it's like the actual symbol. Uh, and we don't see those pop up on, on the, the basics themselves very often. So, I mean, look, I'm guessing that's like Yog Moth there. Or no, Ur- Urborg. Urborg. Not, yeah, it would be Urborg. I'm thinking Urborg, Tomb of Yog Moth. So I'm thinking that's Urborg. And then I don't know what the blue Valakut one would be. Probably uh, Red would be Valakut, probably. I think you're thinking of uh, Zendikar. I think that's oh, Shiv. Yeah, yeah. Yes, you're right. And then that would be Benalia on the plains. Um, the forest would be... I don't know, Yavimaya, maybe? Yeah, I, don't know. I would think so. Um, but maybe that's Tolaria? I don't know what the island's supposed to be. I, I, I thought Tolaria was inhabited by things. But anyway, we got some other spoilers in here. Uh, anything catch your eye? Jaya's back, which is interesting. She's a, We've got a four-ability Planeswalker there with just one plus. Um, I, I don't want to spend too much time on any of the details. Check out the spoilers for all these things. But we also see kickers with different costs. 
So there's a card called Temporal Firestorm that has kicker one white and or one blue. And then it does things based on the number. What does it do? Uh, oh, it's not multi kicker. It looks like it's just right. so it's a single kicker. But it's an and or so you can pay both costs. OK, 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 OK. I see what's going on here. So let's just read it. Choose up to X creatures and or planeswalkers you control where X is the number of times the spell was kicked. So it's not multi kicker. It's, <laughs> it's just it's, uh, it's multi kicker, but it's kicker. limited limited to the like multi-kicker you can kick as many times as you have mana to spend on it this is literally you can only you can only kick it at most twice yeah so, and then it's uh it deals five damage to each creature and each planeswalker so you could play this for five and not kick it and it's a five mana deal five to every creature and planeswalker perfectly fine but then it is also a seven mana phase out one of your things and if, if you're in red and white uh or red and blue and then you could also kick it for nine phase out two of your things this feels like a strong mid-range slash controlly type card, right? Yeah, I mean, it's an expensive spell, but it is kind of a one-sided board wipe in that you can choose your best thing or two to save if you have the mana to do it. I really like that the kicker ability lets you be in multiple colors. If they were yeah. going to do kicker this way, I mean, I guess you could have just made it like a hybrid mana symbol if you wanted to let it be multicolored, yeah. but uh, I think it's a cool cool effect. Um, there's also a new War elf esque card we've got a two mana one three that taps the admin of any color but it also just has an activate ability of tap target land you control becomes a three three elemental with haste until end of turn it's still land activate only as a sorcery that's a wow that's a powerful ability to not have mana associated with the cost yeah um uh, I, I mean it's a ma- it's a mana dork with relevance in the late game like this is going to be one of the better mana dorks we've seen in limited in a while i'm, I'm glad it's a rare yeah <laughs> oh i like this uh one green white for a two four jasmine boreal of the seven a human druid it looks like to be the the red the, the green white signpost uncommon it says tap to add green white spend this mana only to cast creature spells with no abilities and then creatures you control with no abilities can't be blocked by creatures with abilities what oh my gosh. <laughs> red uh, green white aggro mono like just mono no text bears cards. maybe yeah um Oh, we got another one of these type of level up cards. I love these. Evolved Sleeper. Black for a 1-1 human at rare. You can pay a black to make it a human cleric with base power and toughness 2-2. Two, two. Then you can pay one of the black if it's a cleric, put a death touch counter on it, and it becomes a Phyrexian human cleric with base power and toughness 3-3. Three, three. So you can, this so is a 1-mana one 1-1, one, you pay 3 and it becomes a 3-mana or you pay three and it becomes a three, three death touch and you can spread it out over two turns. This seems like a good rate. And then um, one black, black, if it's a Phyrexian, put a one, one counter on it, draw a card, lose a life, man. Yeah, that's pretty sick. That's a good card. Yeah, that's good. One last, last one to look at here. Are we, are we thinking of the same one? The top left. Oh my God, dude. A dragon Hydra, Shivan Devastator. What is going on here? Uh, X and a red for a zero, zero, Jeez, this is gross. This is just going to win the game. <laughs> so, yeah, X and a red for a 0 0 Dragon Hydra at Mythic. It has flying and haste, and it ETBs with X plus one plus one counters on it. So, uh, yeah, you five mana, four, four flyer haste. Like, or perhaps in nine mana, eight, eight flying haste. Like yep. when you top deck this, you just tap all your lands and say, all right. <laughs> it's also just like a two or three mana, one, one or two, two in the air. Like if you really needed a two drop or something. Yeah. Also, I'm noticing a little thing in the flavor text. There were many reasons why Shiv was not high on Shieldred's list of places to conquer. Big, fiery reasons. Yeah, that sounds like Shieldred's coming. Which is, I mean, more or less expected. I don't think, I don't think, um, 
uh crap i just drew a blank on her name um ellis norn yeah i don't think ellis norn's gonna show up until we get to like whatever set is coming where people are like invading new phyrexia or whatever um mm-hmm. but this would be shieldred showing up to try to take take over dominaria before shieldred's plan yeah or, um, i'm noticing before, that the, before ellis norn's plan i'm noticing that the temporal firestorm is a story spotlight too um, looks like Teferi and, and uh, Jai are working together on something here. Um, something else I noticed, uh, I think it was the prof or, or someone had, had put this uh, theory out. What if the Gatewatch lose in, in this set? And then that. Karn has to go back in time to the Brothers' War, hence the next set, uh, and stop the Phyrexians in the past to, the, to defeat them in the future. So, some real Samurai Jack type stuff. I have think? also heard that theory. I, I kind of like it. I I think I like seeing the Phyrexians win, uh, <laughs> but I don't know. It seems a little gimmicky to me. I, I don't really like all the, like, go back and fix the thing that probably could have just been fixed. And, like, I don't know. It is it is what it is. What's got me kind of curious right now is there's a black-red card with lifelink in this set. Hmm. It doesn't happen very often. Yeah, three black-red for a 3-3 three, three reach lifelink. If another source you control would deal non-combat damage to a permanent player, it deals that much plus one instead. And whenever you cast an instant of sorcery, Tor Wauki the Younger deals two damage to any target. That's a fun card. I like that a lot. I mean, that's really deal two gain two to any target, right? Given that it has lifelink. Yes, yes. Well, it's deal three gain three. <laughs> oh, it's another source. No, it's not. It's oh, oh okay, okay. Yeah, no, it's still good. I mean, we've talked about every other card. We may as well just mention Ramirez de Petro, which... Wait, isn't there a card called the Ghost of Ramirez de Petro? Or was that a different de Petro? I don't know. Pillager. Uh, two blue-black for a 4-3. Uncommon human pirate. When Ramirez de Petro villager enters the battlefield, you lose two life and create two treasure tokens. Interesting. Whenever one or more pirates you control deal combat damage to a player, exile the top card of that player's library. You may cast that card for as long as it remains exiled. Five color pirates, huh? Yeah, oh. I'm in. Also, you were right. There is a card called Ghost of Ramirez de Petro. It's from the first Commander Legends set. So was that in the few? Uh, whatever. <laughs>